If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and in this episode, my guest is Marshall Mosher, the CEO of Vestico, a company that uses outdoor adventure experiences to help people push outside their comfort zones, get comfortable being uncomfortable, and build deep trust with their teammates. Marshall caught the entrepreneurial bug at the tail end of his master's program and has not looked back since. After graduating from the University of Georgia, Marshall spent time at the Singularity University Global Solutions Program, the fellowship at NASA Ames, and ever since, he's been on the path of empowering human experience through technology. This is such a fun conversation that I cannot wait for you to listen in. We cover so much ground. We talk about how to make hard product pivots and face down the tough emotions involved with walking away from a major product investment. We talk about self-identity. We spend time talking about how to cultivate trusting teams and create experiences where people deeply connect with each other and how you can bring that to people in your life and your workplace. Always, always, always focused on learning and pushing outside his comfort zone. Marshall also just shares with us something really fun, what it actually feels like to fly around in an Iron Man jetpack suit. Yes, I am serious. This is such a fun conversation that I need to stop talking about it and let you just get to it. So without any further delay, please enjoy Marshall Mosher. Marshall, officially, welcome to the show, brother. How are you doing? Thanks. Doing great. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute pleasure. So, I, you know, I've got to start off by asking you something that I don't think very many people on the planet can answer, but I think you can. What does it feel like to be Iron Man? <laughs> uh, so I, I think Richard would probably have a better answer to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the jet suit is probably what you're referring to with gravity. It's pretty amazing. It's, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, just search take on gravity, the hashtag or gravity.co on Instagram. And you'll see what looks like the real life Iron Man suit flying around. It's, um, it's pretty incredible. And it, um, it works purely based on vectoring force, uh, kind of, you know, moving those uh force vectors in and out to go up and down turn left and right so you actually pull the throttle in the the whole way and and hold it there uh, unlike what most people think but it's it's pretty incredible although i will say um it's it, it takes a little bit of uh getting used to a little bit of athleticism but once once you kind of master that it's it's pretty incredible so you gotta, hold on. We, gotta, we gotta go to the backstory here for a second I, i'm so curious how did you get like how did how did that happen how did you get involved in that where you were suddenly like flying this crazy jet suit around and, and for that for that matter like paint the picture where were where was this how did this happen when did this like give me the story here yeah, for sure. Well, so so my involvement with Gravity is on the U.S. team. So Gravity is based out of the U.K., uh, right outside London in Salisbury. Uh, Richard Browning, the founder, uh, is the one who invented the suit. Crazy story mm-hmm. that could take up an entire podcast uh, <laughs> to tell that story. Pretty amazing. Uh, Richard's had a ton of incredible um, keynotes and talks you could look up online to hear the full story. But um, my involvement is mainly with helping to facilitate the U.S. US based uh, training experience. Experiences. So actually being able to get in the suit and learn how to fly it yourself um, 
from an experiential standpoint. So all of the pilots, you know, the real pilots are in the UK. So while I've, you know, gotten in the suit and, and know how to fly it, uh, the people that are racing around are all the, uh, the UK pilots. Uh, you'll probably notice that they're all pretty small, <laughs> a little bit, uh, a little bit smaller than what an American proof suit, uh, would need to be. We're all a little bit heavier here yeah. in the U S so. they're, they're like the, the, so, the, uh, this is like the whole horse jockey thing, right? It's like, you right. Need to be a yeah, no, size. exactly. Cause around 200 pounds is, is, um, uh, around the max. I say around is cause there's a lot of factors that go into, um, you know, how much, thrust and, and lift it has um you know altitude is one temperature is another but we don't like to run the engines on 100 percent. so usually pilots tend to be like around 150 or even less than that so pretty small guys but we actually are prototyping a bigger suit uh that can handle a lot um uh, a lot more so uh, any heavier pilots uh like us aspiring u.s people uh, have hope now, but but yeah, the story is pretty interesting. So I have always been passionate about using technology and entrepreneurship to promote access to adventure sports from the standpoint of leading a healthier and happier lifestyle. So anything that has kind of an intersection of technology, uh, adventure, and entrepreneurship is definitely something I get excited by. And mm-hmm. my company, Vestigo, uses all kinds of outdoor adventure experiences for innovation training for other companies where we'll create experiences that are very first step experiences. So anyone can participate in them, but they'll, they'll be mentally challenging. And that mental aspect of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone is one of the key aspects for innovation uh, development, kind of building up that mindset. So because I had that background and using these adventure sport experiences for innovation training, when I got connected to um, the uh, the leader of the U.S. team and started building a relationship with him. Uh, that was right around the time when Gravity was exploring doing these uh, kind of experiential jet suit training events. And our background at Vestigo of combining action adventure sports with leadership development, especially on the high executive level, uh, just worked really well to kind of form a bit of a, a collaboration and partnership together to start testing those. But the story of how we got how we uh, originally got synced up is pretty interesting. Um, We were just talking about this before the interview about Burning Man. So two years ago, my first experience at Burning Man, I had no idea what to expect. But from all the pictures, there's a couple of things that are very evident and obvious. One of those is that people like creating unique ways to get around. Yes. Whether it's an art car or a mutant vehicle, whatever you want to call it, uh, essentially taking a bus and turning it into a pirate ship where you know a bunch of people can ride on it, or whether it's an individual vehicle, uh, you know, a lot of people ride bikes, but they'll you know spruce up their bikes to make them look like a zebra, just all kinds of crazy stuff that you, there's nothing uh, that hasn't been seen at Burning Man, I'm sure. Mm. But one thing that I was really interested in at the time was the kind of the emergence of these electric vehicles. And this was back in 2016, I think. So like the hoverboards were just becoming popular. Uh, the one wheels like just come out, the electric unicycles, all those things. So and the boosted boards. So I wanted to make a surfboard that looked like it was flying across the desert by taking a boosted board, putting it 
uh, under this old surfboard and putting um, old mountain bike tires, cutting them up and and making off road tires for the boosted board. Nice. And the the surf the surfboard was so low to the ground that the fins just cut or cleared the ground, so it was high enough to work, but low enough that you couldn't see the boosted board. So the wheels <laughs> would kick up the playa dust on the bottom of the board and then radiate out from there. So it looked like I was surfing this wake of dust. That and is it amazing. Looked like it was flying. You couldn't tell that I had a booster board under it as my kind of personal transportation device. And one of my playa gifts was I would teach people how to surf. Of course, the surf in the playa, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit different from real surfing, but um, I thought that would be a, a cool thing to do. So I was just cruising around one day and I saw this really nice camera that this guy was taking pictures of different people and I just happened to ride by him. He snapped a photo of me. And whenever someone has a really nice camera at Burning Man, um, you know that they must be some kind of awesome photographer. So I was like, I would love that picture. So I went up to him, talked to him, asked him if he could email me the photo. He said, sure. You know, I told him my name, where I'm from, all that good stuff. So a couple of days later, uh, I get a text that I think came through at maybe four or five in the morning because that's the only time when you actually have enough bandwidth for <laughs> signal to come through to your phone. And it was from a friend I hadn't talked to in years. And it was a link and a message that said, most epic thing I've ever seen, dot, dot, dot. And then this link. And I was like, okay. Uh, and and then the link, yeah, it had a photo of me on the surfboard surfing through the playa with this uh you know this article title and it was from the sun which is a big publication in the uk and uh if you google marshall moser burning man you'll find a hilarious uh clickbait title i know you got to google it now. doing it right now of, <laughs> doing um, it as we of burning man where you know everyone wants to know about it and there's a lot of stereotypes on burning man so this publication figured oh well, if we can make the most ridiculous sounding title people will click on it so the title is, I think I have it memorized now, Inside Burning Man, where 80,000 partygoers dance naked, get high, and enjoy orgies in the Nevada desert, which as a burner, you know that that probably happens, but that's definitely not what the event is, is you know, encompassed in. Um, it's way different than that. But of course, that's what people are going to click on. And the guy who was the photographer was uh, a guy that worked for Reuters that must have sold that photo. Oh, my gosh. To stop rambling on about it, um, the guy that ran the US for Gravity saw that photo, thought that the surfboard was a flying surfboard. He's like, we got to reach out to this guy. So uh, he happened to be in Atlanta at the time um, for work, just traveling and reached out, found me on LinkedIn. We met up. I started talking about what we're doing with Vestigo uh, and uh, just sort of built a friendship from there. But hilarious story of, of how... Uh, how I ended up meeting them. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm looking at this article right now, and your your friend is right. This is one of the most epic photos, and you, you totally like. We'll totally put this in the show notes. Just the photo, but the this is a hell of a surfboard, man. This is amazing. But I'm just like, Thanks. I'm having such yeah. nostalgia looking at these photos because that was my first burn, and all I remember was just how fucking hot it was. That was like, I think the oh, hottest yeah. year they'd ever had on record. But somehow I'm nostalgic for the Playa Dust right now. Looking, at I, have to, I have to close this tab, or I am just going to literally just go down a rabbit hole of, of like Pinterest. Exactly. No, I, I, I'm jealous. You got a chance to go this year. I was sad I missed it. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. I didn't go last year 
definitely missed it. And uh, it was it was kind of my my gift to myself. It was like, you know, just cleared a bunch of big milestones with work and needed to kind of unplug for a while. And it was a it was a really powerful experience this year. So I was super glad. Nice. Super glad I got well, the when it's to go. the right timing to go, it can be pretty impactful for sure. I know. Absolutely. And, and I think I feel like we started at a place where this is going to probably be a recurring theme throughout this conversation where we're talking about the impact of experiences, especially at, you know, certain times. So, that, you know, uh, dear listener, prepare yourself. That's going to be a recurring theme here. Um, but, you know, I, one of the things I remember, we were introduced by our mutual friend, Min. And um, one of the things that stood out to me just right away in our first conversation, and I, and I think everything I've, I've learned about you since, and, and we're still getting to know each other, but I think one of the, one of the areas where I really resonated with you and, and with what you're up to is you're really, you really strike me as someone who's drawn almost maybe even almost compulsively to push the limits and like challenge what's possible for yourself as a way of helping yourself and the people around you thrive. And I just, first of all, I think that's, that's dope. And I'm curious, like, Thanks. where does that come from for you? Like, how did, where do you think that? That's a good developed? question. I don't, I, I don't really know. I'm gonna have to do some like soul searching to figure out where that came from. But, um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I love trying to just better, kind of better my ability to you know navigate life and I'm a huge proponent of using uh, experiences as metaphors for a lot of things that we experience in life and and pushing the limits um, you know everything is all relative so something that might feel impossible a year ago looking back on it might seem incredibly easy now mm-hmm. if you just kind of continue down that road of constantly challenging what you can do and and um, uh, you know where you think you can go with it, and it's uh, it's it's something that I really enjoy. But um, the I don't really know where that initially came from. It might have been from my mom, who just at a young age always really encouraged me to go out and and just make the most of of experiences and of life and of what's possible, and um, you know never never settle for. Um, you know, for the status quo and just kind of keep on climbing. And I think, um, I think that, you know, always stuck with me and probably ended up translating into a lot of things that I, I really love in the action adventure sports space now as well. And, um, I, I really love the learning phase mm-hmm. of new things. I, I, I'm sort of ADD in, in terms of different sports. I just love doing all these different things, which is sort of unique because a lot of people stick to like, let's take mountain biking, for example, people will get in mountain biking, fall in love with it, and they'll be a mountain biker. And as much as I love mountain biking, um, and I guess I call myself a mountain biker, uh, you know, I love whitewater kayaking and trail running and paragliding and snowboarding and and all these other things mm-hmm. that that are just different ways to experience the world, mainly because I love that first step of just feeling completely inadequate about something <laughs> and just figuring it out as you go, uh, the falling down and getting back up. When I get to a certain point where I'm uh, you know, competent in that sport, there's sort of this threshold where I can keep pushing myself in that sport. But if I do that, there can be you know, exponentially increasing consequences to what could happen mm-hmm. if things go mm-hmm. wrong. So at that point, I usually say, you know, I'm, I'm happy being a, you know, a class four plus, maybe class five whitewater kayaker. I don't need to do the class five plus crazy waterfall right. stuff. Like let's learn a new sport uh, and just enjoy constantly challenging myself while keeping it safe by just trying new things. And there's 
obviously unlimited amounts of ways that you can continuously challenge yourself by just getting into something that's new that uh, you have no idea how to do and just figuring it out along the way. Yeah, there you, I see I I so love that because you know, I think one of the biggest risks that people this is one of those things that I think about but don't often talk about, which is the the risks of how we self-identify. And what I mean by that is we you know, we're all we're as humans we're we're meaning-making machines, we're born storytellers, we're telling ourselves and everyone else stories all the time and living inside those stories and one of the biggest parts of those stories is the labels we we put on things, especially ourselves. And so I'm curious if I were to try to pick a couple words that I think you would resonate with at, at an identity level, it seems like you really identify yourself with being an explorer, an optimist, and a learner. That's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. I got to write those down. Good thing we're recording. <laughs> uh, <laughs> problem solved, my man. <laughs> What I was starting to wonder about, and I'd love for you to um, expand on this if, if you're interested, is what is in the background that connects the dots between those things for you? Like, what is it you're tapping into? My guess is that it's something, there's some connective tissue in the background that they all share, even though they obviously look very different on the outside. For sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I've... Um recently started reading a lot of uh, Stephen Kotler's work, who's the author of a book called The Rise of Superman, Mm, and studying this um, kind of mental psychological phenomenon called the flow state, which he did not come up with, but has done a lot of research in terms of how action adventure sports can trigger that flow state a lot faster than other means, and how utilizing that flow state can make us more productive and uh, really tap into our our ability for kind of peak human performance uh, in things that are uh, obviously far, um, uh, you know, that transcend just the outdoor adventure sports, but also in work and and life. And uh, I think whitewater kayaking is a good example because you're literally floating on a flowing river that when you really tune into the skills that you'll get the more you paddle, you just feel one with this force of nature that in any other environment you would feel panicked and terrified to be in. But because you have the tools of your kayak and your paddle and the mental ability to stay calm and navigate a changing and and always different environment purely based on what you've learned how to do and how to how to uh, react to situations that you don't know are coming. But when they come, you can just almost instinctually, autonomously react to that uh, because of your training and your background. That that flow state feeling, I think, is pretty addictive. Mm, yep. And um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs resonate with that, uh, even if they've never done any outdoor adventure sports, um, because you, you can tap into the flow state um, really by doing anything that you love that has creativity or innovation kind of baked into it that uh, you just feel like you're, you're on a roll. Like those days when you maybe just start pursuing a new idea or a new company and in the morning you wake up at five in the morning and then all of a sudden it's 5 p.m. and you're like oh I haven't eaten today I should probably do that that's <laughs> that's because you're tapped into the flow state of this thing that just makes you so effective and efficient and uh, outdoor adventure sports um, 
are a great catalyst to bring that out. And regardless of whatever you're doing, just being so proficient at something to the point where you can navigate this unknown and changing environment just with your skills and instincts um, is a, a pretty incredible mental state to get in. And I love the ability for those kinds of experiences to bring for that sure. out. For sure. No, I love that uh, flow. I mean, it's seeing seeing the way Kotler has built on Csikszentmihalyi's work and in, in sort of the idea of flow and how you can cultivate that and... and um, what was his uh there was there was his books were there was the rise of superman and then what was his most recent one about sort of group flow um yeah i've heard of that i haven't read that I've one yet up, uh um, stealing fire look at the name fire. i think i've got it in my yeah, <laughs> yeah. there you go so I, I and i think that's actually a really interesting um kind of transition point to because I, I feel like that's that is almost the overlap between everything we've just been talking about and and what you guys do at vestigo is you think about the way human perform i mean it, for anyone who hasn't who's not familiar with Kotler's work on flow highly highly recommend checking it out but i think the punchline um is that the, the, at least what i would say is the punchline is that every single possible measure of performance and satisfaction just goes through the roof when someone's in flow and so the more you can create an environment and conditions where a person or a group of people are in flow basically everything is going to be way way better than it could otherwise possibly be would you would you agree with that absolutely yeah for sure i definitely agree also it'd be great in your own words how would you explain that most classic and somewhat annoying of american questions of what you do with this with, with <laughs> that is a very classic question yeah for sure it's it's uh taken us a while to explain what that is and figure out what the main problem we're solving is as well which i'm sure we'll get to further on in the interview but uh in its current state we essentially help companies to build a culture of innovation and at first glance, you're like, how does outdoor adventure yeah, what? sports have anything to do with innovation? But as we talk more into this topic and like what you mentioned with flow, the ability to get outside your comfort zone and navigate a changing environment is one of the most crucial aspects of being able to innovate. Um, that that there is, of course, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But at the end of the day, you have to be willing to jump headfirst into some new and unknown environment uh, where in all likelihoods you will fail and be willing and not even willing, uh, eager to seek out that environment takes a particular mindset that can actually be um, much uh, more accelerated uh, in terms of building through outdoor adventure sports, just like flow. It's very similar. And a lot of what we do is based off of uh, Csikszentmihalyi's kind of uh, um, kind of teachings around that. But essentially, it's, it's exposure therapy mm. to uh, challenging and potentially sometimes psychologically stressful environments. And what I mean by that is take rappelling as an example. Uh, if anyone doesn't know what rappelling is, it's the opposite of climbing. You're descending down a rock face on a rope that you're controlling your your rate of descent um, by the amount of friction you're applying to a rope using a particular device that uh, makes it pretty easy to do it so it's not just you know, grip strength on the rope or anything uh, but anyone can do that it's physically very easy when I mean, you're going with gravity there's no physical strength involved uh, but mentally it's very challenging because the number two fear in the u.s is fear of heights so something that pushes you outside your comfort zone that taps into some type of mental fear-based challenge uh, in a way that 
helps you practice navigating that environment is a massive boost in your ability to do those kinds of things and navigate unknown and, and oftentimes scary environments in the office. And it doesn't have to be just through outdoor adventure sports. We've just found that those are the most effective ways to do it. But um, when I mentioned... Uh, fear of heights being the number two fear in the U.S. Uh, public speaking is actually the number one fear. Yep. So if you take your team to an improv class mm-hmm. uh, or a public speaking kind of training class, I mean that will bring out similar emotions of getting outside your comfort zone and navigating a, a unknown environment. That's sort of the the uh, basis of what improv is. So just anything that challenges you to push past what you perceive your limits to be in a way that involves your team is extremely effective for creating a culture of innovation that also has a strong foundation in trust, teamwork, and um, effective communication. So that all makes perfect sense. And I want to, I actually want to dig into it now and go deeper because um, I think most people listening to this to this podcast will will probably already be very much on board with the idea of like how trust uh, creates connection, which enhances performance and and things like that. But I want to dig into it because I've heard you talk elsewhere that um, you mentioned the number two fear is falling, but I've heard you say elsewhere that it, actually the fear is not of falling, and it's not even the fear of of dying, but it's the fear of losing control. And so I'd love you to unpack that a little bit, and then maybe talk about. You, you mentioned a few uh, just a minute ago about the the really how does one cultivate a mindset where we're not just like interested in the discomfort but in fact eager for it so talk a little bit about that you did some great research because I have no idea what <laughs> what interview I even mentioned that on but you're right yeah that's that's one one thing that I, I mentioned in all the experiences that I lead that have something to do with heights at least is that most people think it's fear of heights or even a fear of falling or a lot of people say a fear of death uh, uh, at the <laughs> end but it's really a fear of not being in control if you're falling off something tall you're not scared of uh, the fact that that thing was tall you're scared about the fact that there's nothing you can do to control the very uh, unpleasant imminent end that uh, you're going to uh, experience unless you're over water, I suppose. But that fear of not being in control is, 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 you know, goes far beyond um, that fear of heights. And with the repelling experience, you are actually falling to get to the bottom, but you're falling in a controlled way. So you do have that control. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of taking your brain's fear of this experience and telling yourself, the thing I actually fear is the fear of being controlled. And I actually am in control right now through this system that I've put in place. And that's one reason why I, I really like, uh, another reason why I really like uh, all these different outdoor adventure sports is, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, that's, you know, jumping off a mountain and paragliding, that sounds crazy. Why would you ever do that? You know, what happens if your glider just spontaneously or something into flames? <laughs> or <just laughs> yes. It's even though you're in an environment like the air that feels very scary and the higher you go, if you, if for anyone who does a first tandem flight in paragliding, the scarier it's going to feel in reality to use paragliding as an example, the higher you go, the safer you are because the more time you have to fix a problem that might happen and throughout that entire situation you are in control through this apparatus that you have around you the environment you've created to take a experience that would normally feel very uncomfortable and not having control of you know, being suspended up in the air to actually being able to control every aspect of that through the the skills that you have and the gear that mm. you have to ultimately get to where you want to go so i really like um 
kind of practicing putting myself in those environments where uh, at first psychologically it feels scary, Mm -hmm. but through the tools and the training and um, through a lot of the experiences of your teams, oftentimes the help of one another, you can take this environment that feels scary or out of control um, and uh, successfully navigate that through these different things that you've put in place, including the help of others. One of the things specifically while we're on the topic of, you know, navigating challenge and uncertainty, basically, um, I'm really curious about, you know, I've heard you talk about that one of the things that most people, well, not people, one of the things that gets missed when people think about like building teams or building trust or, you know, we're going to go have some sort of experience that we hope will bring us closer together or whatever the case may be is, uh, I mean, I think you could most broadly call it facilitation, but it's the idea of like a kind of a a, um, a debrief, right? And talking about the experience that we had and how it applies to what we do and, and things like that. So talk to me a little bit about how that how that goes and, and like what difference that actually makes, especially in cultivating and, and really developing this mindset you're, you're talking about. Yeah, the debrief is everything. Um, it is the the place where you really connect the dots between what you experienced and how it relates back to the bigger picture. So, um, a lot of, a lot of companies that are considering doing something for team building experience, which you mentioned before, we actually hate that word team building because it doesn't, a lot of, unfortunately it has a, a connotation of, Oh, well we, we did a team building experience because we went to a baseball game the other day, or we did a happy hour the other day. That was team building. So anything that doesn't have a debrief is not real team building, which is why we don't even use that word anymore. Cause people just immediately associate it with these just trivial mm-hmm. group activities yep. that they sort of lump into that team building category. But like when was the last time, you heard of the military doing team building. (laughs) Never. But they have some of the most effective Mm -hmm. teams in the world because their team building is carrying a log across a beach until you can't feel your feet anymore. Uh, Putting yourself in these crazy environments and watching how the team comes together because of it. And you bet that they debrief those kinds of experiences for sure. So the debrief is really what's the most important where we're taking all of these things that might be subconsciously happening in each individual person's head and giving them time to to start thinking through what those actually mean realistically for them and for their job in the company. And a lot of times when you're actually in the experience, you might not be thinking at all. Uh, you might just be pumped up on adrenaline and a lot of the neurotransmitters there just immediately going off to kind of keep you in fight or flight mode of just survival. But once you push past that and you have a little bit of time to bring your heart Mm -hmm. rate down and sort of think through, okay, why did that make me feel that Mm -hmm. way? How did I push through that? How did I navigate that? Um, Did I react in a way I wanted to react or did I not? And, And how come? When you can start talking about those together as a team, you can have some of the most incredibly impactful conversations to really get to know people that you'll ever mm-hmm. have in any kind of scenario. Cause you really dig into what people do when they're uncomfortable or when they're under pressure, when they're in a stressful environment and why they act that way and start to really build up some trust and through a little bit of vulnerability mm-hmm. with the people that you might've had surface level conversations with forever, but never really dug into that real impactful 
kind of under the surface um, kind of psychology that ev- that everyone has in a very unique way. So that debrief is incredible for bringing out those kind of personal uh, your personality traits that mm-hmm. everyone has and communicating in a really um, kind of honest, open way about that. But, but also how those experiences represent and translate into external factors and how they serve as an experiential analogy for a particular goal or mm-hmm. theme. So if, if you have uh, a core value that's up on the wall that you walk past every day, but don't really ever talk about or put into practice, this is the chance to say, okay, how did that step that you took off the mountain in this repelling experience link back to that core value of uh, be comfortable with getting uncomfortable or, you know, whatever the, the kind of the connection is, how do you take this mindset and apply it back to what your company says is, you know, one of the three most important values that you need to exhibit to accomplish the goals that we have as a team. And those are really the things that people think back on as Mm. well. So if they're in a stressful environment back in the office, they'll think, Oh, well I, you know, I was able to, to jump off this cliff and navigate this really crazy experience. I can definitely push through this or, you know, that time that I did that one thing uh, that helped me to really build a connection to this particular value that's going to resonate with me and stay with me a lot longer and in a much more powerful way because I had this really strong experience that links back to this particular goal or value that's not quite as abstract as it might have uh, been at one time. For sure. So that, that makes sense on a very conceptual level. Could you, could you give me a, like an actual example of when you went through this process and you really saw it make a difference for a group for, for a team? They probably walked away with a very different and new understanding of what, what they meant by that value and what it meant to them. Yeah, definitely. Um, all kinds of experiences, but there's one story that, um, that I, I really, really like to tell because it was actually our, our very first corporate experience. We actually started off um, as more of a B2C company working with individuals, uh, which I'll get more into the history of, of that uh, later on. But our very first company that we worked with, uh, we got lucky and actually worked with Home Depot here in Atlanta, which is an awesome first client to have. Uh, but the way that it got started is that one of their employees, a guy named Spencer Wyckoff, his sister was one of my good friends at the University of Georgia. And I worked pretty closely with her in the Disabilities Resource Center, where I was the graduate uh, assistant. In, in making just disability awareness and disability access uh, better mm-hmm. on campus. So she has muscular dystrophy, uh, which means she's in a wheelchair. And obviously, you can't go upstairs in a wheelchair. So you know, a lot of really historic uh, places at the University of Georgia were only accessible by mm-hmm. stairs. So she did this amazing campaign to add in kind of a handicap access ramp uh, around one of the most historic uh, symbols for the University of Georgia, the arch and all kinds of things that I worked with her back then on. Uh, when we graduated, I kind of continued to follow her progress of what her and her brother were doing. And in order to continue uh, just raising awareness for muscular dystrophy and disability accessibility in general, he would carry her on his back through Spartan races. It's hard enough yeah. to run a Spartan race wow. on your own, let alone with uh, your sister on your back. And he is this huge huge like six foot seven guy um it's pretty strong and uh, i thought that was just an amazing way to continue that mindset and when we were talking about you know what we could do with the home depot team and him being obviously part of the home depot team i was like we we need to do something to highlight this story especially given your one of your values of family and and really feeling like a family Hmm. team as a as a unit uh, let's do something to continue this story, continue this impact. So we wanted to do something epic that 
obviously involves an incredible outdoor adventure initiative that would ideally set a world record. So we started thinking, well, what's the most iconic outdoor environment that we have in mm-hmm. the Southeast uh, that anyone would know across the country and maybe even across the world. So really the only thing that fits that is the Appalachian Trail, which is one of the biggest um, continuous trails in the world and definitely in the U.S. And it starts in Georgia. The Georgia section to the border of North Carolina is about 80 miles, like 78, 79 miles. And it's one of the most difficult in terms of elevation change, just straight up, straight down, like the whole way. It's, it's horrible. So we came up with this crazy idea to carry Cardin across the entire Georgia section of the Appalachian Trail, Whoa. broken up into nine different day hikes from road crossing to road crossing so that uh, different people could join for different days. So it wasn't just one group backpacking the whole thing. So we had anywhere from 15 to 40 people each day come out to hike the trail with us and actually help carry Karin. So it wasn't Spencer carrying her the entire way. We were taking turns through anyone on the team, the Home Depot team that came out to support who thought they could help carry. And, and even if it was for literally five steps or our record was an hour, which is about a mile and a half uh, per person, it doesn't matter how far you carry her. It just every single step mm. counts. That everyone played a role, whether it was just getting out there and hiking with us for moral encouragement or whether it was carrying the gear of the person who was carrying Karn or whether it was carrying Karn herself. Everyone played a crucial role that had a really powerful effect on their team uh, and kind of their sense of family as a family unit. And we, we, there were some days when we, we didn't, we honestly didn't know if we would, we would be able to finish and we made it, but, but we, we finished, we actually finished a day early as well. We nice. went ahead of schedule and uh, set a world record through it. Um, had an incredibly impactful story, uh, got some decent press and news out of it. And um, now we actually haven't announced this yet, but uh, we're pretty close to announcing it. The next initiative we're going to do is to create a similar operation but this time it will be one group that goes the full way and not the Appalachian Trail, but Kilimanjaro. So we're going to carry Carton up Mount Kilimanjaro and then paraglide off the top to set uh, another world record because that's never been done um, in that fashion. I love it. What an exciting, what an exciting next thing to do. So tell me, take me back to that. That's, that's an amazing story. But take me back to the debrief after that. Right. And what did you see happen uh, when you when you, know, you talked a lot about like this family value that that Home Depot had? But what did you see happen specifically like for for whether it was one person or a small group of people who were involved in that experience? Like, how did that actually impact them? And what did you see? Like, what was the shift that you saw working with that team afterwards? There were some really incredible realizations that came out of it. Um so to share one, and there were a bunch, but I'd say one of the most impactful ones was how you felt when you were actually carrying Cardin. And we didn't really... I mean, everyone felt this way to a degree, but we didn't realize how prolific it was and how profound it was until the debrief when we all sort of talked about it. But when you're carrying a backpack, you're just like, I hate this backpack. I hate the fact I have to carry this 60 pound thing across this trail. But when you're carrying Cardin, I mean, she's double the weight of a heavy backpacker bag at about 120 pounds. And she actually helps you go further than you think you would be able to 
go because your your backpack is now a person who is whispering encouragement into your ear every mm. step of the way and really making it this incredibly uh, just motivational team effort of uh, just understanding that every step you take, especially when you're going up one of those steep elevation gains that that are prolific on the Appalachian Trail in Georgia, just every step you take is getting us one step further to something that would be impossible without your help. Even if you can only take five steps, that's five steps closer. And it was just amazing to see people break their own personal limits of what they thought mm. they could do uh, because of what that meant to the initiative and mm. to Cardin uh, in a way that they never would have done on their own. If I, I'm convinced that even if some of these people had half the weight of a heavy 60-pound backpacker bag, they would have given up and stopped on the side of the mountain just dropped it and been like, I'm just leaving this here. Mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. But um, just knowing that as much as it sucked every single step, it at least you can you can take steps and you can walk mm-hmm. and you're doing this for for someone who can't empowering her to do this thing that would be impossible without you. It's just a powerful, powerful motivation place to be. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, so much, you know, humans thrive on meaning and purpose. And that is such like, that's a very visceral, real thing. Um, I, I love that story. So I, I kind of I was, I was thinking about this and I was trying to think of as I was listening to that, I, I was trying to think of how to how I would translate this. So obviously the best thing to do if you're interested in creating these types of experiences for your team is to call Marshall and hire Vestigo. But if someone's not <laughs> in a position to do that or whatever, that just for whatever set of reasons they, that, that isn't in the cards for them, I, I'd love you to like, what, what are one or two things that say a product leader, you know, leader of a product team or a product organization, how can they bring this back into their into their culture, into their world? Like, how can they use, what are some of the lessons that you've picked up over the years that they could actually apply, uh, whether or not they're able to cultivate or sorry, to create an experience like the one you just described? Yeah, definitely. It's easier than people think. And, you know, as much as I would love to work with any company that would like to invest in this, you definitely don't have to hire a company to do it. I think the biggest message that I just hope people take away is just do something that's more meaningful and more impactful than a baseball game or a happy hour. Um, and, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. But just like you said, humans resonate with stories and making something about a bigger purpose than whatever the kind of the thing on the surface looks like um, goes a long way. So what we've started doing for a lot of our experiences, because we are doing more of these recurring experiences as more of a mental mindset training program throughout the course of a year. So we'll do monthly experiences for 25 different employees each time. Um, As a way to add all those experiences into a single theme, what we've started doing is saying every foot and elevation gain per person throughout all these different experiences, whether it's, you know, hiking or uh, climbing or caving, whatever it is, every foot and elevation gain per person adds up to this overall theme of the height of Mount Everest of 29,000 feet. So that creates this really visual goal that people have in their head and a story behind that goal. And especially if you can tie a really powerful team value to that goal of saying, you know, this the summit of Mount Everest, which is the collective effort of all of our work and training throughout all these different experiences represents this one particular goal or value, then that goal or value is going to have so much more meaning to it uh, than it would otherwise. So just try to find unique ways to create 
experiences that tap into the bigger purpose meaning behind a particular goal or value that you you have as a company and and that will create a stronger connection to that value and help people resonate with that value in a bigger way and if you can create a philanthropic focus built into that as well then then that's even better like what we did with uh Cardin and and Home Depot we've actually replicated that with a couple other companies where um obviously we weren't it was very that was a very unique situation um, with some other companies. We we weren't carrying someone, but we also emulated that section of that trip through doing that section of the Appalachian Trail in a similar way. But every mile hiked per person went towards fundraising for a organization that was sort of near or dear to one of their values as a company that supported um, something that they really believed in. So having a philanthropic approach in addition to creating meaning uh, goes a long way as well. But the biggest... Uh, Really, the biggest benefit is going to come when you have the combination of creating higher purpose meaning, philanthropic value, and the kind of goals and values you have as a company all merged into one campaign of multiple experiences or one experience um, will create a good outcome. It makes a lot of sense. One of the things I want to I actually want to push in a little bit deeper here because I feel like there's a, one or two more kind of bedrock principles that because you know one of the things it seems like you've you've had to get very good at and maybe you always were good at this or maybe it's something you you acquired um, through the course of what you've been doing. And again, we're going to shift to talk a little bit more about some of those pivots and the history of Vestigo here in, in just a minute. But you know, you, you're someone who's clearly had to think deeply about experience design, right? And and how you. No, don't just take a, a stock experience, but how do you customize that to achieve a certain outcome to you know deepen certain values and experiences and meaning like you were just describing? One of the things I've heard you talk about is that a lot of your work is, um, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but it was predicated on Brene Brown's work really around vulnerability in particular, which is, I think, a really important idea. And it's one of those things that people can get a little bit squeamish about, which I think is unfortunate, but I think it is also somewhat reflective of, of where we are today. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like, so if let's say, let's do a little, little hypothetical here. Let's imagine that I'm like a director of product for uh, a startup in Silicon Valley, right? So I oversee a couple product managers and several product teams. I'm, I'm part of the leadership group of a, of a whole product organization here. And I'm really thinking about I'm not just spending all my time, my cycles thinking about the products itself. I'm also thinking about the environment, the people, the, their development, et cetera. Um, as I go forward trying to create some experiences for, for my people to grow, you know, to, to, to build trust, to really get to know each other better, uh, to connect much more deeply than they would otherwise, what are the things that I need to keep in mind that we haven't already covered? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the first step of all of our experiences is bringing in a speaker or at the very least uh, delivering content, whether it's um, you know a podcast like this or a YouTube video to help people get in the right mindset to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's a really powerful and important launching point um, that I think uh, can, can definitely be achieved if uh, the main focus is on vulnerability by watching Brene Brown's TED Talk, uh, or mm-hmm. even you know, reading her book if you want a little bit more of a uh, in-depth um, uh, kind of 
mindset shift before you even get started. So putting people in the right mental framework before launching into an experiential form of um, a lot that we've talked about can really go a long way because people already have that framework of understanding why what we're about to do or what we're currently doing is important and how it is going to relate back to some of those um, uh, takeaways that that we want. So it it can really be done as as easily as watching a, a YouTube video, or mm. um, or if you really want uh, uh, kind of a to do it in a bigger way, um, like what we do, we always bring in a you know a keynote speaker to talk to the company about. Usually, it's someone who's done something amazing in the outdoor adventure space. Like we had uh, Colin O'Brady come in uh, recently to talk to one of our groups before launching a campaign with them, where he just set the world record for the first person to walk across Antarctica solo and unsupported mm-hmm. carrying or not carrying really dragging a 300 pound sled full of all his food and supplies the whole way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no one's ever it's done amazing that, story. um, ever. Yeah. Uh, unsupported, which means, you know, no dogs, no wind power, just, you know, just you and your two sled. legs, right? <laughs> which, um, you know, when you have someone like that, come talk to your company, uh, people, you know, everything's relative. So that story, just makes people understand how the only thing that he had that was special. I mean, he doesn't even have that much polar exploration experience. The th- the the main factor was his ability to keep putting one foot in front of the other, which purely comes from mindset and your willingness to just keep pushing yourself. So when you have a story like that, it really inspires the hell out of everyone to yeah. want to challenge. Uh, themselves in that way as well. So it really helps to jumpstart uh, a program and give a lot more power and impact to it. I love that. No, because one of the things I had been, I was, go- I wanted to ask you was, you know, especially considering like the idea of vulnerability in Brene Brown's work is, is, you know, how can you help people move? It's, it's basically how do you help people move into discomfort? Because there's always some resistance to that idea. But I think what you just said is a really cool way of doing that. Are there, are there any others you've noticed? Like, if you know that there's going to be, like, you know, you can imagine every, every team leader deals with this. Every organizational leader deals with this. There's, there are just moments of discomfort, moments uh, where you're like, yeah, this is going to be tough. And are there, are, what have you seen about how to help lead a group of people into what you already know and they already know is going to be uncomfortable? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the most important things is for that team leader is just being great at exhibiting and demonstrating what you're trying to preach. So to go back to that vulnerability piece, if we're taking a team out repelling, then we'll actually sit down with that product leader or the CEO or whoever the leader is that's on that experience and and say, you know, it is going to go a long way for your group if, if, let's say you are assuming you're somewhat terrified of this as well, especially if you have a prolific fear of heights, tell the group that. Say, like, I'm scared as shit right now, guys. I don't know <laughs> if I can do this. Um, and use that team support to go first and accomplish mm-hmm. it and just be vulnerable. Don't try to, to be the macho leader that we feel like we need to be and just be vulnerable with the, with the team about how you're feeling if, if you're feeling that way. And that gives everyone sort of this unspoken permission to feel that way as well. Cause they're all feeling it too. And you know, whether it's back in the office in 
in accomplishing this really ambitious deadline that you have in, in launching this new product as a product leader, um, it, it's okay to exhibit that vulnerability yourself. And when you do that yourself, you just immediately uh, get the trust and uh, buy-in of your team to mm-hmm. perform um, in a way that is built on trust and teamwork instead of on some other um, values that sometimes come with the type A personality um, of just competition and you looking the best instead of uh, creating the best outcome for the team. Yeah, for sure. So conversely then, so that's what what people should do when, you know, we, you could look at what you're describing here as sort of a microcosm of a larger type of cultural shift that a leader might want to undertake in their organization. What do what do leaders or what do most people who are trying to affect some sort of cultural or environmental change in their teams or their organizations? What do they usually, from what you've seen, like where does this go wrong? Where do they trip and fall and get in their own way? And like how how do you know what do, what do basically most people think is going to work that never works? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I've got to kind of preface this by saying you know we only see this from the outside. Um, in terms of the companies that we work with. But a lot of times when it doesn't work well are when people aren't willing to exhibit that vulnerability to kind of go back to what I was saying before. It's, it's Mm -hmm. as impactful as it is when you take the things I was just saying and put them into practice and exhibit that vulnerability with your team. It's equally detrimental if you don't. Mm. Um, And I can, I wouldn't share specific names, but there's definitely companies we've seen that, um, unfortunately, the the leader just doesn't get that and does that, and we we see how it it affects the rest of the team, um, and ultimately your ability to achieve the overall team goal that you're shooting for, um, you know, diminishes. So it, um, yeah, it can be it can be bad if you don't put those into practice. Um, just as much as it could be good if you do. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it really reminds me of um, one of my, I, I think you and I share a massive uh, fandom for this person. So one of my favorite authors and thinkers and optimists is Simon Sinek, who I think you're also quite a fan of. And have you, have you seen his new book, by the way? Have you checked it out? I haven't yet. No, I really want to. Have you? Uh, yeah, the the Infinite Game. Highly, highly recommend it. We'll link to it in the show notes, of course. Yeah, but I mean, Start with Why is one of my favorites. So it's, it's yeah, I, all of I'm his sure work is fantastic. But I, I have to, I have to sit, confess as a quick, quick aside here, a quick like side side thing. I I've been waiting for this book for two years. I've followed the development <laughs> of like I've watched all the I could see in like his different things that I was following him developing these ideas, and I <laughs> I literally like woke up at six in the morning excited to read that book on launch day and like devoured the entire thing by lunch it was that good i love um, how most people like felt that way of waiting in lines for harry potter and like you know <laughs> waiting for game of thrones to come out oh my god I'm that, i am that much of a nerd <laughs> i have definitely I, I mean, that stuff's incredible <laughs> yeah but i mean that you know if you ever needed proof that i'm a total geek for like building teams and products there you go right um, <laughs> but uh where was i going i had i had a reason i brought that up <laughs> Um, but I think the reason I was, Oh, that's why. Okay. So the reason I thought of that was there's a, there's a whole thing in there where he talks, you know, one of the core pillars he talks about in playing the infinite game is, is building trusting teams, which is exactly what his, his last book leaders eat last was all about. And one of the examples he gave that he, he gave that 
I was really surprised by, but in retrospect makes perfect sense was, was the Navy SEALs, right? So the Navy SEALs is perhaps the most, one of the most elite performance organizations ever and certainly in current existence. And I don't think anybody would debate that. And he, he gave several examples and he talked how at length, um, and you kind of, you kind of sort of alluded to this earlier when you talked about sort of the activities that really engender trust between people like, carrying a log around on a beach until you can't move. Basically that's definitely a part of seal training. Um, but he talked about literally the seals value trust and trustworthiness over performance. Like they have a holistic view of a candidate for to, to be a seal and that they actually ahead of someone's technical capabilities, they value trustworthiness and the ability for those people to like bond and be to, to meld into a unit. And I thought that was amazing. Like the most elite performance group that I know of values something more than performance. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I've had some some friends that um, have come from the military background that, that have told me that in you know training for you know the SEALs team or Marines or anything else, um, it's not necessarily what happens when you say you can't keep going uh, or when you you know when you fall, but what happens when you get back up and mm. how you support your team to keep going instead of thinking about yourself so i think they were they used this activity that something like they were swimming some crazy distance in the ocean like next to a boat until like you couldn't swim anymore and you drown or something and you have multiple people and they were looking for you know when one person would help someone that couldn't keep going uh not necessarily the fact that you could go the longest but when you can help your team that feels like they can't keep going that's really what what the um the that's what they're looking for outcome is right yeah yeah, no, it, I love that, right? Because it's it's especially because so many people in in certainly in business, um, you know, they they excel as an individual contributor, and then because of that, they get promoted to a man a position of some, at least some level of authority or assumed leadership, right? Like they're they run a team or whatever the case may be, and it's a totally different thing where suddenly you're not responsible for the work anymore. You're responsible for the people who are responsible for the work. And it's like, well, what do you do? It's not when do you fall down? It's what do you do when that person falls down next to you? And I, I just think it's a really great um, analogy. So yeah, you know, there's just I think there's one of the issues is that sometimes people will have this um, just you know I want to look better personally rather than the team looking better as a whole, mm-hmm. and just understanding that it's um, you know it's a it's a team effort when you're part of a company and. Uh, Really helping to build that trust and collaborative net, uh, you know, nature, so that people don't withhold information or backstab people or whatever like mm-hmm. that. Just just to make themselves look look good, yeah. Or even like, even if it's nothing nefarious, like just just um, you know, they they might fake it, right? They might be right, faking yeah. that they know something or whatever. But whatever the case may be, you know, you're not getting access. You're blocking. That's blocking people from actually stepping into their full level of performance and potential and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So absolutely. I feel like that's a great transition point. I want to, I want to talk more about Vestigo now and, and your journey as a company, as a company leader, as a, as a leader of a product. And I, I think where I want to start is, you know, Vestigo has had to make some tough calls over the years, right? You guys have been around for what, four and a half years now, I for think. Sure. Yeah. yeah about, about four that. and a half years now. And where you started the, it, sorry, your entire product strategy and vision for where you started seems like it's it, well, maybe your vision hasn't shifted, but certainly the product you were putting out in the world where you started is radically different than where you are now. And I'd love for you to talk about talk to me about that pivot. Talk to me about the B2B to the B2C pivot. 
Yeah, so we to be to be. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I can't keep the acronym straight either. Too, it's, too many letters um, and numbers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, when we first got started, I was personally really passionate about helping people take that first step experience with the end goal, not necessarily being better, more effective, productive teams, because we were working with individuals. The goal was my personal experience as a guide with the outdoor rec program at the University of Georgia, where we'd take students on usually first step experiences in all these different outdoor adventure sports, which is the time when I fell in love with a lot of these things, I saw firsthand how learning how to whitewater kayak uh, you know, saved some friends from drugs and depression and mm. getting into even something as simple as hiking helped other friends lose 30, 40 pounds and be more active and healthy just because they're having fun on the weekend. But this kind of fun translates into amazing personal health benefits, both physically and mentally. So I just wanted to help unlock those first step experiences, which tended to be why people didn't do them in the first place, because they just didn't know anyone who they could could show them those experiences and weren't just going to go try it on their own. And I wanted to make it easier for um, for someone to find a local that could guide them on those kinds of experiences. So the first idea was exactly what Airbnb Experiences is now doing. Um, they started about two years after we started. But for anyone who doesn't know what Airbnb Experiences is, it's the same model as Airbnb, the sharing economy model. But instead of a guide or instead of a host you know, hosting their house, they're hosting a guided experience. Uh, you know whether that's a photography tour around a city or surfing lessons, you know, off the coast of you know wherever your house is. I think at first it was paired with like if you were a host, you could also lead experiences. But now it's this completely separate thing where it doesn't have really anything to do with staying in a house. It's just connecting local guides who can facilitate these really awesome experiences with people who want to do something cool on the weekend, whether they're traveling or not. And that was the original idea for Vestigo specifically in the outdoor adventure world because there were a couple issues with the outdoor adventure guiding world um for one it's just a lot of old school mom and pop shops Mm -hmm. and if you're a guide most of the guides are uh you know college students that are just doing something for like summer beer money like let's use whitewater rafting as an example um you're never going to go whitewater rafting and like ask your guide for business advice. And they're probably not going to connect the themes of what you experienced on the river back to like any higher level purpose. So we, when we first started creating this platform, we were similar, um, but we wanted eventually to have these experiences be more meaningful than, than just taking people on that first ever experience. So we started playing around with working with companies and connecting more of the dots between what you're experiencing going through this really impactful first step experience back to how you can actually take a business um, outcome from that experience. And there were a couple of reasons why we made the shift in addition to just wanting to have a bigger impact and, connect the dots uh, on how that actually can translate into your life and your work in a bigger way. But the main reason was that just building a B2C company is, is really hard mm-hmm. and takes a lot of funding. Uh, the cost to acquire a new user is relatively high. Um, and it, it just takes a lot of advertising and marketing. So we started having some companies reach out to us uh, to do company experiences. We started catering more to that and realized that the first like, two or three company experiences we led 
blew the revenue numbers out of the water from what we could get from just the B2C side. Sure. And the impact was higher, um, both in connecting the dots between how the experience actually relates to other factors outside of that experience, but also in the sense that people that were coming with their companies um, sometimes were people that never in a million years would have signed up for this on their own. Even if there was a tech platform that made it really easy to do so, they would just be like, no. I'm never doing that. And oftentimes we would notice, because we do pre and post surveys, we would notice the people that were the least excited for it uh, were oftentimes the people who were the most scared about doing it. But after they did it, they were the ones that had the biggest impact. We realized that working with companies on the B2B side actually opened the door for us to work with more people than we ever would be able to work with on the B2C side because those people just wouldn't ever sign up to take that first step in the first place. But mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. doing it with their company and supported by their coworkers and peers, it uh, helped them to take that first step. So there were a couple of reasons why we made the shift. Honestly, the biggest reason was because B2B kept the lights on and B2C didn't. Sure. Um, unless we went out and fundraised, which we, we didn't want to do. So working with companies was way better from a financial standpoint. But all the impact um, kind of metrics that we were seeing were actually a lot higher on the B2B side as well. And we were really excited by where that could take us. Hmm. So was that a hard choice for you, though? Yeah, it was for sure. So I had this dream of making this super techie outdoor adventure company like what Airbnb experiences ended up doing. And I had just come back from Singularity University where I know you you participated in that program as well. And we just have yep. this mindset of, you know, think 10x bigger that Peter Diamandis drills into our head whenever we talk to him. And uh, just the idea of switching from a very techie B2C outdoor adventure platform to uh, essentially services-based company that I have no idea how this can scale bigger than for every one input we put into it, we get one output is definitely not scalable like the B2C side was. Um, and it was really hard for me to take that tech excitement that I had coming out of Singularity University and say, you know, the most important thing before we can talk about how we bring this to, you know, a million or a billion or however many billion people. Um, <laughs> uh, the first real problem was how do we just pay our rents as a company? <laughs> How do we make this work financially? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had to put my you know business owner hat on and sort of take off my aspirational, you know, big tech company entrepreneur scalability hat in order to just make it work. And now we're finally starting to get back to that idea of how we can make this more back back kind of bring the tech company piece back into it, how we can scale a little bit more. And we're doing a lot of really amazing work with virtual reality experiences and a lot of other uh, exciting stuff from a tech perspective to bring it to a bigger audience, scale a little bit, a little bit more than just the services based company could. Uh, But without what we did before, um, I don't think we would still be around today to do what we want to do in the future. Oh, for sure. And so the decision, in, in, you know, it's hindsight's twenty twenty. Looking back, it makes perfect sense. But I want, and we're going to move on here to the the future of where you guys are going next in a second. But I, I think there's actually some 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 really valuable lessons in that in making that hard choice that I, I want to dig into for a second. So you know, I'm imagining, I'm trying to empathize with who. Who else might be, you know, the people who might be listening to this? And, and one thing that comes to mind is, you know, this is your baby, right? You've thought about this thing, you've dreamed about this thing, you've poured yourself into this thing, and it's not working, right? It's not working and it sucks. 
And that is such a rough place to be. Like that decision. And, and first of all, like the honesty it takes is, is, is impressive. So good on you for that. But I'm really like, take me back to where, like, there had to, there's always a moment I've found where you finally can, conf- like, you finally realize the, the, the totality of the situation. And then you have to really make a decision. So if you would take me back to when was that and how did you finally make this decision? Because I'm sure. Well, if you're anything like me, you probably dragged your feet a little bit longer. You know, it probably took longer than it than <laughs> otherwise should have. If you know, had you known then what you know now, but you know, take me back to that and t- tell me about what what was that like? What did that feel like? How did you do it? How did you and your co-founder deal with it? How the team? Tell me that story. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was more difficult than it should have been because I made it psychologically and mentally more difficult than it should have been. Uh, I almost felt like. I mean, coming back from this super tech-focused incubator like Singularity University, I almost felt like a bit of a failure of not focusing on just what the high-tech solution was and Mm. just saying, we're going to create outdoor experiences that impact companies. I don't know what about that is techie other than the fact that we had a way more expensive website than, than we should have. <laughs> but I, I just, I sort of, for, for a solid amount of time, I almost felt embarrassed to like, to catch up with some other friends from Singularity, just in the sense that I just felt like I wasn't, I wasn't living up to that exponential dream that yep. we're just, we're um, constantly reminded of. Um, but one thing that really helped me was I I try to get as much advice as possible from other entrepreneurs, especially in the community here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. that were doing something similar that I looked up to that I felt like their model had something similar to do with us. So one story that is good to share that I really I really took a lot away from was a company called Rody here in Atlanta. Um if you've ever wished you could hire an Uber driver just to send your you know, backpack that your friend left in your car back to their house instead of driving it back there. That's what Rody is. They're Uber for shipping. Okay. Um, I've actually called an Uber once. To, uh, you can, apparently, you can just drop things off an Uber and they'll take it to the destination. But I don't think you're supposed to do that. Uh, <laughs> but Rody, it's just it's using the exact same model as Uber to ship things. So a very B two C company, mm-hmm. but most of their revenue comes from businesses on the B two B side. So hmm. after talking to their founder, I was trying to figure out how do you solve this chicken and the egg problem of a B2C platform idea where you have to cater to both the supply and the demand at the same time in the same place with a very low budget. And he was telling me how they worked uh, pretty extensively with companies to actually fund the early days of the platform. So one example with Rody is that Delta, also headquartered in Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, is obviously a massive airline and the Atlanta airport is one of the biggest airports in the world. Whenever you fly into Atlanta on Delta and your bag, for whatever reason, doesn't get on that flight with you, um, you don't have to hang out at the airport until the next flight comes in. You just go to wherever you want to go and Delta will deliver that bag to you. Well, they have to do that somehow. And Rody is a great way to do that. So Rody sold Delta to be their solution to delivering lost or delayed baggage to those customers. Mm -hmm. So even though they are a very B2C 
company. And on the outside, you would never know that they work with a lot of companies. Well, most of their revenue, or at least this was years ago when I talked to them at the time, um, came from hmm. B2B engagements. So that sort of got me thinking, well, maybe we can actually still make this B2C platform idea work. We'll just go out and do the same thing, work with companies, develop a bunch of, of, um, engagements with companies that can then be a great lead gen in terms of getting those individual employees to come back, use the platform, maybe with their family or friends on another experience, and uh, really fund the company through B2B revenue. So we, we did that for a while. We did a combination of the two. The only difference was that even though Rody brilliantly found a B2B way to make revenue to fund the B2C side, they didn't just to use that to fund the B2C side. They also raised, you know, like four or five million dollars and their founder had a successful exit before that and all that kind of stuff, which we didn't have and we were first time founders. So it, we realized that we were just still, it, it was making the company profitable, which was great, but mm-hmm. we're still operating on a bootstrap budget mm-hmm. and just we couldn't do both at the same time. So we yeah. decided turn off the B2C side maybe temporarily, maybe forever, focus on the B2B side. And we can always bring the B2... Focus on the B2B side. Now I'm mixing up my acronyms. We can always bring back... <laughs> I'm just going to say business side. and consumer because like, the acronyms are killing me right now. I shouldn't have said Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. you, so, all right. So you make the tough call to, to shelve the consumer the consumer angle, go with the business side because you can actually see a, a pathway to not only profitability, but sustainability. Um, but one of the things I'm curious about, like in, in that moment or, or in, through that process... If it did, how did your how did that affect your vision and your team? Like, was that did you see this as just an alternate path and a different strategy to the same vision, or was this like you had to go through the entire thing of saying, "Wow, I somehow I like the picture the picture on the puzzle on you know the picture on the outside of the puzzle box is is changing." Like, how how big of a shift was this? Well, <laughs> it was a bit easier for me in terms of convincing the team because they were really the ones convincing me to go to the. B2B side, they were all very much for it. Um, and I was really the the one that was hesitating. Mm. So um, why were you hesitating? Was, for a lot of those reasons I described earlier about just I, I just wanted to be a tech company CEO and it felt like I wasn't a tech company anymore mm. if I just went the B2B route. Going back so to identity. It, yeah, right. Yeah, kind of going back to your the identity thing you were talking about. Um so I sort of had to just get out of my own way to, mm. to do what we had to do to make it work. But um, but the team was all on board with working with B2B. I mean, it was it was obvious from a revenue standpoint. Um, like after we did more in revenue from like the first three engagements with companies that we did in the previous year or something crazy mm. like that. It was um, just so clear. It, it was pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't too hard to get them on board. Yeah. Well, I, so I, I so appreciate you just sharing all that so openly and, and I can actually directly personally empathize with the experience you had after SU. SU is an, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's an amazing program, but it's so, um, you want to talk about a group of people who are good at experience design? That is a group of people who are very, very effective at experience design. And when I say that, oh, what yeah. I mean is, anyone who goes through that program is deeply impacted by it and so much so that it actually takes a while to kind of like, once you leave that bubble, it takes a while to kind of sort yourself out about wait, like how do what do I what do I do with all this stuff? Like it it and it's pretty I mean it's a whole other we can talk about that for 
that alone for at least an hour for um, sure. But I, I hear you, man. I, I, I totally, I feel you, brother. Um, so talk to me now about, so you, you made this pivot a couple of years ago, like keep the lights on pivot made a lot of sense. One thing you mentioned was you started seeing your, the impact was actually greater. So I'm curious, like what are the, what are the metrics you, you look at to assess your impact and did those change before and after the pivot? Yeah, so we we actually were not that focused on impact before the pivot. Um, as makes sense because the rest of the industry it wasn't focused on it. Like if you go whitewater rafting, they're not going to send you a survey that said like how much did this impact you as a person or their team. And they might send you a survey that was like how good was your experience generically. Um, but it, it's more of you know, how much fun did you have yeah. instead of how much did you learn or grow from this experience? So yeah. we really started measuring the impact once we started working with companies. And it actually took us a while to figure that out too. Because at, at in the beginning, we were just about, well, let's create epic experiences that are just way better from a generic team building standpoint than the alternatives. And that's, that's sort of why we hate the words team building now. Um, because that was sort of the old model of what we were doing. And we would work, you know, mainly with HR. And every time we would say, you know, what are the main outcomes you want to have, they would just generically, like, literally every time generically say, you know, we just want people to get to know each other better. We're hiring a lot of people and just building relationships is really important to us, which is not wrong. And that's very true. But that's a very generic thing for literally every single company to tell us. And we're like, you know, every company is different. There's got to be more specific outcomes for each individual company. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really realize that until we started talking with the, um, you know, the VPs, the CEOs, you know, sometimes the director of products, um, and just people that were I had more of the vision for, you know, where are we going instead of more of the HR mindset of um, just kind of general relationship building, trust building, which are, which are all great. But when we started hearing the problems from the leadership of what is the big issue you have as a company, a lot of it stemmed from we really need to build a stronger culture of innovation in the standpoint of how can we move faster uh, encourage our employees to to you know jump into a new problem, not be afraid of the unknown. So that's really when we started creating more of a focus on using these experiences in uh, as a part of the learning and development initiatives of companies and the executive training of companies, rather than the HR initiatives of companies. So the um, that was kind of a a big lesson for for us to learn and now i completely forgot your original question after i sort of <laughs> it's all good i had asked you what what were the what are the impact metrics you look at like and the, the oh, i think right. the larger question i'm i'm getting at or, or wondering about is you know let's say let's say i'm you know we'll continue with our example here let's say i'm a leader in a company right a team leader and i'm whether or not my overall company is going through some sort of cultural transformation and is like actively on board with that like independent of that let's say i have a vision for what I want the culture to be in, in just maybe just in my team, in my, in, in the orbit I'm directly affecting, you know, and I'm taking steps to do it. Like we've talked about a bunch of that already. One of the questions I would ask is if I'm that person, how do I know if it's working? Like, what do you, yeah. what do you look at? To really know if this is working? How do you, what do you steer by? 
Yeah. So measuring the impact uh, is definitely challenging because there's so many factors that um, kind of go into your bottom line as a company. But there's several ways that we approach it. And there's several things that we're developing that we're really excited for the future in terms of more effective ways to approach it. So traditionally, the industry kind of around learning and development has measured impact through surveys. So, you know, surveys are great. We can do pre and post surveys for every individual experience and every person that goes through those experiences and ask really targeted questions that can help us to figure out how much of an impact those individual people had and then measure that throughout the course of time after multiple experiences and see how that's changing. You know, things like how much of this experience, um, you know, affect your ability to navigate unknown environments? How supported do you feel by your team um, during times of, you know, turmoil or uh, stress? You know, all kinds of things that can directly translate back into mm-hmm. your team's ability to get outside their comfort zone and navigate change and adaptability. Sure. Um, but we also try to measure some company-wide stats. If they will give it to us, things like, just how has your revenue changed as a company? And there's so many other factors that go into that, but also um, your retention rate, attrition rate, things like that. Um, it tends to have a really big effect on attrition rate. Like for instance, um, a lot of the numbers that we see drop attrition rates of the number of people leaving each year um, by around 25 to 75%. Wow. Somewhere in that kind of, you know, 40 to 50 usually. So like uh, our last company that we measured um, had a pretty consistent 14% attrition rate every year. And then after the first year of working with us, it dropped down to seven. So just the retention aspect uh, alone is pretty incredible. But um, in terms of measuring the actual innovation impact and your, your team's ability to innovate and create, that's definitely a little bit more challenging. But through those reports and surveys, we can get a good sense for um, an idea on how that hopefully impacts your team and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hopefully we see a, a change in the company's revenue ultimately, but there's so many other factors that go into that. One of the other things that we're developing that we're really excited about that definitely goes back to more of the high tech singularity university approach to, to things is that we're working with a neuroscientist to create a, uh, an innovation score, essentially measuring the decrease in brain activity in the part of the brain that's associated with fear and your ability to push through that fear. Mm-hmm. If anyone's ever seen the movie Free Solo with Alex Honnold, who uh, free climbed um, you know, El Cap in Yosemite, there's a part of the movie where he, he gets an MRI to figure out there must be something wrong with his brain to do this. Yep. yep. And uh, they noticed that he has a, you know, he's very resilient to things that usually cause more stimulation in the part of your brain that's associated with fear. Obviously, because he exposes himself to pretty crazy environments on a daily basis, sort of exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, really similar to that, we actually can measure that as well through consumer grade, uh, you know, FDA approved technology, a headset that you can put on that measures certain parts of your brain while you're experiencing the activity, after you experience the activity, and actually measure a decrease in the activation of that part of your brain that's normally associated with fear and your ability to push past fear. There's different parts of the brain that are associated with different factors that ultimately lead to what that innovation score would be. Um, this is wait, this is so fascinating. I'm, I, I think neuroscience is totally fascinating and the way the brain works is sort of the seat of all this. So did you guys hack a Muse headband to measure the activation of the amygdala? Is that what you're doing? Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So there's there's a there's a couple of different um, 
uh, different companies that are, are making headsets. Yeah, Muse is one of them. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a bunch of really exciting consumer-grade tech that's that's out there that, yeah. uh, that we can use. For sure. So it actually reminds me, for some reason, um, well, actually, the reason will be obvious in a second. There's a conference at a community that um, another podcast guest uh, introduced me to that I think you might find very interesting for exactly what we're talking about here. And it's actually also out of the SU universe. Um, are you familiar with the transformative technology conference? Does that ring a bell? Sounds familiar. Basically, the entire idea is how do you use tech for sort of inner well-being, cognitive, cognitive flourishing. Nicole Bradford, probably. Yes. Yeah, Nicole she, Bradford. She was in my class. Okay, yep. so there you go. So, yeah, so I I've, I know about her conference. I didn't realize that that was the name, uh, but yeah, she she does amazing stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say you. I feel like y'all you guys should reconnect and uh, look into this some more because there's a lot of stuff. I, I went last year. And I'm going to go again this year. It's in about a month, and there's a oh, lot awesome. of a lot of tech there. That is really, really interesting that I feel like is going to be um, in line with the kind of transformation, transformations, your transformative experiences you're trying to cultivate um, through, through your work. So just as a quick note, check it out. And you, you yeah, too, absolutely. dear listener, you too, check them out. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit more and then we'll, we'll kind of shift gears and start to wrap up here. But tell me a little bit more about where, like what's what's next for Vestigo? Where are you going? You mentioned VR, but tell me a little bit about what, what, uh, what, we, what we could expect to see next. Yeah, for sure. Well, so the neuroscience thing, that's something we're really excited about because that is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of players in the kind of L&D, peak performance, innovation training, executive training space. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one has a better solution than surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just a small fish in that space for sure. So if we can create a, a approach that's actually based on science, um, then that'd be pretty exciting. So that's something that we're we're really interested in building up further. Uh, the virtual reality, like we mentioned before, is really exciting. So that was actually a bit of a, a heated topic for us as a team because obviously we're a bunch of people that are passionate about people getting outside mm-hmm. and using those experiences for growth. And the idea of essentially using video games as a, an alternative for that was not the most uh, exciting idea for, for a lot of our team. And I, I definitely share that as well. But the fact of the matter is that no company is going to force their employees to go on an experience with us. Yep. And the easiest experience we can create still will not make everyone feel comfortable. There's always going to be a percentage of employees that even an easy hike, they're like, nope, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. But those people oftentimes will put on a headset, a VR headset in an office. So if you think of kind of the ability to jump into these new and unknown environments as a scale from zero to 10, and let's say an easy an easy entry level hike is maybe a two, there's still people that are at the, the zero and the one mm, scale, mm-hmm. um, which is normal. And um, we don't want to leave them out of this experience. Yeah. Um, so the virtual reality has been a really great way to come into the office, put people in an experience that they are not expecting is going to be as difficult as it is, um, and have them start to have an experiential form of that mindset shift using something that can be done in 30 minutes instead of taking the entire team out to an actual experience. So one one activity that we use, um, this is not one that we developed ourselves. It's been around for a while, the, the virtual reality plank walk experience where uh, you've probably done it before. I, I did something similar, but keep going. So essentially you have a plank, a wooden plank that's on the ground that when you set up, you scan the plank um, 
in to make sure the dimensions are the same. And then you put the headset on and you're in this virtual environment with an elevator. You walk into the elevator, go to the top floor. And when the elevator opens, this plank is now is now coming out of the elevator that looks like you're on the roof of uh, you know three four five hundred foot building you're you're high i don't know how high it is but it 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 gets your it gets your heart going and when you step up on this real plank this is a real plank on the ground um the headset knows where you are in space and as you move across the plank you're actually moving across the real plank and it plays creaking sounds in your headset so it tricks your brain very effectively into feeling like you're on this plank that if you fall off you're gonna die it it gets your heart rate going in a way that is remarkably uh, immersive. Mm. So we can use this experience to create a very similar mindset shift uh, that repelling can experience. It's obviously never going to be as impactful as a real thing, but it it works to some extent. So we can use these experiences for people that just would never sign up for the real experience in the hope that it can be that first step experience on an easier um, kind of more accessible way to then get people to continue on the real experiences. And the other cool factor with virtual reality is, is that with the new headsets that are out um, especially with the Oculus quest, which is what we use, you don't have to be hooked up to a big, fancy gaming computer to run it, but the quality is still very high. Wow. Which is the first time a headset has had very high uh, immersive quality that doesn't require a gaming computer. This is really the first headset that I think could start creating mass adoption in virtual reality because no one's going to buy a big fancy gaming computer to run a VR headset, but people will buy the Oculus Quest and it's almost as good. Wow. Right? If you don't, I own a Oculus Rift as well that is uh, amazing, but I'm, I mean, I had to do the exact same experience on both headsets side by side to even notice the difference. It's, it's incredible. Wow. Okay. So because of that, we can actually ship those VR headsets with all the content already loaded on it to remote employees and have them in the same virtual space hmm. with the employees that are here in town to do an experience that everyone is a part of, regardless of whether you're in Australia or the US. So we can break down these physical barriers in a way that previously were impossible to break outside of a plane ticket purely by mailing them a headset, which is pretty incredible. I love that. I am totally adding Oculus Quest to my little Amazon wish list and going to go play with oh, this Oh, you should. It's, it's pretty amazing. And they actually, with just a software update, are going to be able to uh, remove the need for the controllers and just track your hands. So you'll have virtual oh, hands wow. just with the cameras on the front of the uh, headset. And then next year, they're coming out with um, uh, the Oculus Horizon, which if there are any Ready Player One fans out there, is oh, sort yeah. of similar to the oasis uh which is sort of scary that facebook's building the oasis but that's a whole other that's topic. a whole other topic but uh, it's a really good point <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was just thinking that, like wow you're basically doing ready player one for people to help them go through these experiences which yep. is awesome and yeah i mean that's out of the scary implications of what could happen if the ready player one style world happens and facebook controls that uh the cool factor is that you're now going to have access to these really amazing virtual environments so you can interact with people uh, in a way that's going to feel like you're actually there with them. And that already exists right now. Uh, it's just not as good. Things like Altspace, VR chat, um, ways that you can interact with other virtual avatars. But but it's uh, it, it looks, from what I can tell, to be a much higher end version of those things in a way that's a lot more accessible. There's, an, there's a podcast episode that I'm trying to find right now. Uh, that I feel like touches on exactly this. Let me just find it really quick. 
it's it's on the podcast by it's a podcast called Distributed by Matt Mullenweg, who's the founder of WordPress um, or Automatic, the company behind WordPress. Um, it was this idea of having live virtual co experiences sort of live virtual experiences where like you're over there, maybe you're on the East coast, I'm on the West coast, but we are live in virtual reality together and sharing some sort of experience. And it was sort of up, awesome. trying to apply That's- that to, I think to the workplace to really get over like, for example, the video conferencing problem where it's like, Oh, you know, video conferencing is It's great, but it's still not the same as like being in the same room at a whiteboard with somebody, for example. Yes, which is one of those things that I think would be so dope to see somebody solve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that is one of the things we're really excited about where VR tech can go. Because now all of a sudden, we have a way to bring back the scalability question to the the new approach to what we're doing with teams and companies, especially if we can find a way to create a virtual facilitator that's facilitating these virtual experiences that team members from all around the world, regardless of remote or non-remote, can join at the same time to have a kind of a hologram facilitator leading you through that debrief after you do the experience. Um, that's something that uh, is is definitely more exponential than what we're doing right now. For sure. In a way that starts the conversation, helps people take that first step without um, you know, our without every one hour of our time you know, leading to you know one hour of experience served. It's a way to scale that uh, that effect, which we're pretty excited about. Yeah, right. And that's what you're always looking for is some sort of nonlinear relationship between your inputs and your outputs, which is exactly. Like, I mean, that's that's gorgeous when you can get there. So uh, we're gonna, I want to go ahead and just sort of wrap up here with a couple of rapid fire questions. They're, they're short questions. Your answers don't have to be short. They, but uh, um, just sort of a bit all over the place. So one, I just wanted to follow up on something you mentioned before we started. Rec- Recording, but it sounded like a good story. Could you tell me a little bit about Vestigo's Obama O's moment and what that whole thing was? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so we were very inspired by the starting story of Airbnb and how they bootstrapped enough money to get started when all the investors said, no, your idea is ridiculous. And no, why would anyone stay at some random person's house? Which is just hilarious thinking back on that. Uh, so what they did was what they did to raise money for the early days to keep the lights on was they created this uh, Captain Crunch style cereal called Obama O's during the initial election with Obama, where you have like a, a cartoon version of Obama on the front of the box and sold this uh, kind of election gimmick at the Democratic National Convention because they they knew conventions better than anything else. They were in New York. Um, conventions were the times when the demand for Airbnb was the highest. And back then, Airbnb was you know two guys in an apartment. Um, the reason why people used Airbnb is not because they were like, oh, that'd be cool to stay at some random person's house. It was just because there was a conference going on in a city like New York that literally booked out every single hotel room in the entire city. And the only alternative to not sleeping on the sidewalk, I don't know, or staying at a friend's house was Airbnb. So they knew conferences really, really well. And they used the Democratic National Convention to sell Obama O's and raise $20,000 from selling Cheerios uh, as a way to keep the lights on. And um, we were like, 
we got to have our Obama O's moment. Uh, you know, what can we sell that we we know really well? And you know, personally, I just like I said earlier, I love everything that combines uh, adventure, entrepreneurship, and technology. And that was right around the time when these electric personal transportation devices were coming out. This is before before Bird and Lyft and Lime and all the electric scooters blew up. This is when hoverboards just started appearing in videos on YouTube, but no one actually knew where you could buy one because you couldn't. They were just mm. they were just these things you saw online, you couldn't even order them online. So this was right after Singularity University, where we actually uh, got a couple of hoverboards from a factory in China that some friend had a connection to. And these some of these factories were just starting to make them because of the craze on YouTube. So we bought a shit ton of hoverboards. I think we put in an initial order for like fifty and sold them on Craigslist. And they, with no advertising at all, and we jacked up the price like. 200, 300%, uh, you're just sold out instantly. So we just started buying wholesale hoverboards from a factory in China where we had to have my Chinese friend like translate for us and send a lot of the messages. And um, it was pretty sketchy. But uh, yeah, we just got a bunch of these hoverboards from China and uh, and sold them as a way to promote you know adventure in your daily commute. So it's like relevant <laughs> to the theme and the brand, uh, a way to just make money and um, you know, raised enough from selling hoverboards to, to get our initial start. And that was actually where I personally fell in love with electric unicycles, which is now uh, how I commute around pretty much everywhere. Um, they... The factory that had the hoverboards uh, in their catalog uh, of random electric things that they made, they had this this thing that I had never seen that I just thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So if you Google electric unicycle, it was an early version of that. I'd never seen a video of it. I No one ever knew about them. And when we were putting in the order, I was just like, guys, can we add on this random thing that I've never seen before that I just really personally want? And they're like, will you pay for it? I was like, yeah. So, <laughs> so we threw that in the order and I got it. And it's this thing. You're just going to have to Google yeah. electric unicycle if you're listening to this. It's very hard to describe. But at first, I thought it was the stupidest. I was really mad I got it because I was like, you can't, this is impossible. You can't ride this. Like, what, how, did, how does this work? Because I just kept falling off mm-hmm. and just thought it was impossible. And eventually got the hang of it and then was obsessed. I mean, it, it is, uh, take this from someone who's, flown jetpacks it, it is the best electric technological form of personal transportation that is uh, that is that some exists. high praise my friend oh i know i know i mean you're not going to fly a jetpack to the grocery store but i ride my electric unicycle to the grocery store every single day uh i actually commute on them now because they have really high powered ones that my current one goes uh 40 miles an hour 100 miles on a charge and i can pick it up and carry it on a bus with me or take it on a plane with me. Although I'm not supposed to take it on planes, but I do anyways. Wow. Um, or, uh, you know, right on the sidewalk when traffic's bad, or on the road when traffic's good. And uh, now I'm, I'm obsessed with electric unicycles. It's almost I like, it. um, you know, just the new form of, of human evolution of mobility. This is, this is like what the Segway hoped to be. Oh, yeah. It works the same as the Segway, except it's not massive and ridiculous looking uh, and you can actually pick it up and it's cool actually it's funny i googled it as you were talking about it and i saw a bunch of people bringing these to burning man this year which i i don't think they were supposed to but i saw it and i remember being out there on the plan being like what is that and now i know yeah i so i brought one uh two three years ago when i first went and i was one of like the only people that was there with them and i saw a bunch of people that were just yeah and now i guess everyone's got a lot of use like this but um 
Marshall Mosher, Iron Man, and Trend Starter. <laughs> right, right, oh, exactly. amazing. But yeah, it's actually uh, it's it's a great way to uh, to travel with your girlfriend as well. Actually, uh, carry Lindsay on my back, <laughs> and we can we can just ride around on the unicycle. And I love it. It, it works easier. It's better than than you think. Okay, so electric th- things I need to buy now: electric unicycle and Oculus Quest. That's that's my lesson exactly. today. I love it. I actually have a video where I was just like, I just want to mess with people and see what people would do. I I was unicycling with the quest on, acting like I was fighting <laughs> aliens or something down this really popular walkway called the Beltline Atlanta, and had a friend that was like hiding in the woods filming people, and it was hilarious. Oh God, please please send me that video and please let me put it in the show notes. <laughs> I definitely will. Oh, awesome. For sure. Yes. <laughs> this makes me very happy. Um, okay. So what, another question. So for, we, I think we mentioned it throughout, you know, once or twice throughout the, this conversation, but, um, over the last couple of years, you guys have actually developed an amazing podcast as well called Inside the Adventure. So everyone who's listening to this, if you've enjoyed this conversation, absolutely go over and listen to Inside the Adventure and we'll link to that. But you've had some incredible guests in through, you know, you've had some totally mind blowing people on your show. And I'm curious. When you look back over those, obviously there's a lot of amazing episodes, a lot of amazing conversations, but just off the cuff, is there any, any like particular conversations that stood out to you for whatever set of reasons, but maybe it, it really impacted how you saw something or something you learned in that conversation just changed how you approach things? For sure. Yeah. One of, um, one of the reasons why I started that actually is because I was really inspired by the how I built this podcast with Guy Raz. Uh, when I was first getting started in the entrepreneurship space, that was sort of what gave me the inspiration to say, you know what, I'm just going to give this a shot and, and go for it. So the, the theme behind Inside the Adventure is very similar to how I built this, where we're interviewing people to hear really their whole life story of, you know, what, what made them the way they are, not just what made them famous. And uh, instead of for entrepreneurship, it's for outdoor adventure and travel uh, you know, lifestyle or athletes, um, whether it's you know a gold medal, um, you know kayaker to a uh, person who just never really traveled much but wanted to do something crazy, so bought a bike and rode to South America and back, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and just hearing the stories of really how they took that first step uh, to kind of go back to that first step theme that's been uh, kind of central to what we've what we've done at Vestigo, and all these stories are just incredibly impactful. Um, and I, it's hard to pick a favorite. I tend to sort of resonate with whatever one I just interviewed with recently because they're all amazing. But one of the last ones that we interviewed that's that's not even live yet um, has been kind of one of my inspirations in the paragliding world, which has been the most recent of adventure sports that I've I've gotten into and been obsessed with, which is what happens whenever I get into a new sport. And um, he's got a fascinating story, uh, a guy named Gavin McClurg, who is uh, one of the best paragliders in the United States, which is a country not known for its paragliding. Um, most of the paragliding community and most of the amazing athletes are from Europe. So there's this one race called the Red Bull X Alps, which is the really the most intense adventure race that exists in the world. Um, the most intense not very well known race for sure. Uh, in Europe, it's very well known, but because paragliding is not big in the US, most people don't know about it. But it's uh, a race across the entire Alps. 
in Europe where you're wow. flying and trail running and the first person Demonico wins. So <laughs> it's a con- you you can fly or you can run or walk, but you can't take a car or any other form of transportation. So it's it's a combination of people who are very good runners, but also people who are very good flyers. Obviously, the more time in your air, the more time you have in the air, the the more uh, likely you are Way more efficient, <laughs> right? The more efficient you are, but it's constantly navigating all these different factors like weather conditions. Uh, you know which route is the the best way to go based on those weather conditions and wind conditions, not just what route's the most direct way there. Um, when to you know when to run instead of when to try to fly and just sit on the top of the mountain forever because the conditions aren't good and it's just fascinating. And he's the only person from the U.S. to ever even place in that race. So it kind of shows you how um, just. Uh, outpaced the uh, the rest of the world as in paragliding than the U.S. But had him on the show recently, and as someone who's this incredible world athlete in paragliding, um, he didn't get into paragliding, you know, all that long ago. It was pretty recent, actually, and he actually started as uh, in in high school. He was a professional skier, wanted to go into the Olympics. You know, blew out his knee, realized he can't really be an Olympic skier with a bad knee so went to college uh really just because his parents wanted him to and realized that he just really does is not meant for a desk job you know he's mm-hmm. like i hated tying yeah. a tie and had an office in a building with no windows and that just wasn't for me so left uh and went to start whitewater kayaking and became a professional whitewater kayaking uh, uh, you know, athlete. We had an incident in Mexico where he almost drowns and said, you know, I, maybe I should pause, press the pause button and whitewater kayaking. So he started a, a sailing company with really not that much sailing experience where he took people on these kind of chartered um, sailing trips around the world. And uh, through that, he did that for like 10 years where he was saying in the early days, he didn't know that anything about sailing. So he would, there would be a lot of days when he would have clients coming and he would be reading about the lesson he was about to teach the clients like in, in his cabin in the bottom of the boat, literally <laughs> yeah. right before the clients actually got there. <laughs> but made the sailing business where you just took people sailing around the world and circumnavigated the world you know, twice and had a girlfriend that uh, introduced him to paragliding. And what she said was funny because the paraglider became his one true love and ended up breaking up with the girl, huh. uh, unfortunately for her. But uh, you got into paragliding um, and... And he's just had all these crazy careers in all these different adventure sports, which I really resonate with because I, it's rare to find people that, that do a bunch of different things. Usually people stick to that one thing and that kind of becomes their identity. Um, but the, the thing that I found the most fascinating thing about this guy's story is that he didn't let anyone else's expectations or fear of failure stop him from pursuing the things that he loved, even when he had no experience in those things. And just built this incredible story in life around follow just the pure outcome of following your passions. And since then, you know, he's been named as one of the National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year, set multiple world records, um, and lived this really uh, incredible uh, life with some amazing stories. Um, that a lot of a lot of which have just come out from that that passion for following your dreams, you know, regardless of um, the probability of failure that might happen uh, in any given scenario when you do that. 
I love it. Why I cannot wait to listen to this episode. This sounds like a fantastic conversation. So I, we, I definitely will be will be listening to that one for sure. So um, my last question, I, I'm going to I'm going to tell you the question, give you a second to think about it because I'm going to answer it um, for you or sorry, not for you, but it I'm makes gonna, it easy for me. I'll, I'm going to cut all this out. But <laughs> anyways, <laughs> my last question I was going to ask you is, um, is there uh, uh, any particular book or few books that have really shaped how you view things or, or that you're finding to be very impactful on you on your journey with Vestigo? So I'm going to give you a second to think about that because I also actually have um, as it just sort of hit me, I was thinking back over the, the conversation we've just been having. And there's two books that really stand out to me that I've read and loved in the last year that I feel like if you haven't read, you would really enjoy. And I think people who've enjoyed this conversation would also enjoy. Actually, three come to mind. Uh, one, the first two are specifically about you. The third one is more about like kind of company culture and, and all that. So the, the company culture one, I'll start there is, um, a book I actually just just discovered and read recently uh, called Primed to Perform. Are you familiar with that book? No. I'll have to check okay, it out. So I, I just came across this, read it, loved it. And it was fascinating because what they did was they basically aggregated a lot of research. It was this this duo out of Harvard, came out a couple years ago. I'm not sure exactly when, but they aggregated a ton of the research around like motivation and psychology and kind of everything from like self-determination theory to kind of flow and all those sorts of things. And they, they put it into a very simple, but I find to be useful model that has really, I read it and I was like, oh, wow, I feel like these people actually came up with a workable, useful model that helps me understand what really drives and also detracts from that sort of inner motivation and drive that people have. And I, as someone who thinks a lot about creating environments for people to thrive, that seemed pretty relevant to me. So I wanted to just recommend that. I think you would both enjoy it and also find it useful for the work you do. Awesome. Um, Thank you. So that's that's book book rec one. You're welcome. Um, number two, and this is more specific to what you were saying just now about like how you know, you, you love, it's so obvious, like how much you love the, the rush of taking on a new thing, of pushing your limits in a new space, right? You talked about like, you'll take, you know, you'll become a, a, a level four, a class four, like whitewater rafter, but not really interested in the five because you don't want to die. And you'll, you'll go do something else, which by the way, good call, I think. Um, but, you know, really talking about being one of the things I find fascinating is, is I guess it's called meta learning, right? Like the art of learning being like learning how to learn better. And there's a lot of great material out there about that. But one book in particular that came out recently is called ultra learning by a guy named Scott Young that I find to be, uh, I found to be really, really good. That's a topic I, I also deeply nerd out on. So that's another one to check out that I think you might like. Um, and the third one, and I don't, this is recency bias coming to play because I'm rereading this book right now, but um, it's a book called Mastery by a guy named George Leonard. And he talks at great length about what does it mean to truly master something and what is the journey and the path of mastery really look like, whether that, so whether that something is programming or whitewater rafting or dance or painting or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's like, what does that, what is the path of mastery regardless of the domain look like? And what are the the pitfalls and the lessons that we can all take advantage of there? And, and as someone who's obsessed with learning and loves all the things we're talking about here, I thought it would be something you, um, you, you also found useful and enjoyable. So check that out. Awesome. Yeah. I've actually got all three of those added to my list now. 
Can't wait. Boom. Done. All right. So now your turn. So is there a book or, or a few books who have, that have really impacted you? You found them incredibly useful or you just enjoyed the hell out of? Yeah, we actually, I, I think this is the sign of a really good podcast host when you get the guest to talk about those <laughs> books and other questions. I think we already talked about a lot of them, actually. So The Rise of Superman uh, and a lot of Stephen Kotler's work for sure. Um, Ready Player One, what we mentioned with the virtual reality. That's probably one of my favorite um, fiction books. Uh, Start with Why, one of Simon Sinek's earlier books. Um, a lot of Brene Brown's work. So uh, yeah, a lot of those have been really foundational to kind of what we've developed at Vestigo um, and have really kind of put some of the kind of the framework in place for us. Um, lately, I've been listening to a bunch of... Um, kind of podcasts and uh, this app called Blinkist as well, which have you ever heard of that? Um, It's sort of the spark notes for books. So I, it has a really great recommendation engine for saying, if you liked X book or, or some, some other book, you'll probably like this one. And it's, it's not really reading a book, but it's sort of the like 30 minute summary of the message of that book. Um, And that's been an awesome app for, for books for anyone out there who's just looking for, Oh, better ways to find books. It's been been really great. But yeah, th- so those uh, ones I mentioned are really probably the most foundational ones for me. And I'm excited to read those ones that uh, they suggested. Thanks for that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You're you're welcome. I I always love um, talking about ideas and books and stuff. So let me know how you like them. Um, and yeah, one actually one way I've seen people use Blinkist. Um, sort of very intentionally is not just the discovery thing, which I actually didn't know about. So thanks for sharing, for, for explaining that. But the other way I've seen it used that I thought was what actually oh wow that's a really good idea is to um, actually test or quickly test, like, is this book worth going deep on? Yeah. Right. Where sure. it's like, you, you can read, you know, listen to this, like whatever, 20 minute sort of snippet and, and little spark notes thing. And it's like, okay, like sometimes that's sufficient and you're like, nope, cool. I'm good. And then other times you're like, okay, yep. I definitely want to go deep on this thing. I'm going to go actually read the whole for thing. Sure. Cause I mean, how many book recommendations for you know everyone out there listening do you get and you read the first quarter of the book and then you never finish it. It's, it really helps you avoid that uh of kind of like getting into a book and being like i'm not really engaged in this anymore because you can get the theme of what the book's like and then say oh well that was okay or give me more of this i need it right now so yeah it helps especially you. especially true unfortunately for business books where far too common any sort of business or leadership book would have been better as like a long article than a 160 page book or whatever right I'm like unfortunately that is that is really really common for sure um, well it's uh a lot of speakers have to have a book these days so it's I, I, I get it. I get it. But, uh, you know, just saying as, as an obsessive reader, a lot of them don't need to be books. Yeah, but, um, so and then related to that, actually, there's a, a practice that somebody, I, a guy I work with recommended to me that it, I, I've been trying on, which as an obsessive reader has been confronting, but I'm finding it to actually be very, very helpful. And he, he said one of the most powerful practices or, or like just habits he took on was he, he stopped he started putting down books if he wouldn't want to read the book anymore. Like if he got bored and he was, you know, halfway through or whatever, he would just put it down. And he's like, no other practice he could think of in the last six months has made a better, like a bigger impact on his life. And I was like, oh, wow. So I've been trying that. And despite my sense of compulsion that I must finish the book, I have to agree. It has actually been a really, really good practice. And so kind of my, my, um, one, one question I wanted to wrap up here with on the rapid fire ones is, is there any practices like that for you that have, and that doesn't have to be about books and reading, but are there any personal practices that have come into your life somehow in the last year, two years, whatever, that have really made a difference for you? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I would love to uh, uh, ask you the same after this as well, because as a avid, as much of an avid reader as you are, I'm sure you've got some some really good ones that are probably a lot better than mine. But um, the big thing for me is that I'm just a very slow uh, text processor. So I, I actually, um, you know, had extended time in college for tests that had something to do with just reading a bunch and processing. So even stuff like the uh, SAT and things like that. So it takes me forever to actually read a book, which is why I can't tell you the last time that I physically read an actual book. So what I do is I listen to audiobooks. I really like podcasts. Um, any kind of audio content, I, I absorb a lot faster. And, uh, you know, not everyone's like that. A bunch of people are like, I have to have my physical book. I like turning the page. That's great for those people. I am not one of those people. Uh, but I also just love having, you know, a million books in my pocket on my phone. And even the, you know, the text version of the books, a lot of people say, Oh, well, I like highlighting stuff. Um, you can have Siri read the text version of a book that's on your phone uh, without actually buying an audiobook. And a lot of times those, um, it's called the EPUB format of a book. It sort of just looks like a PDF you can interact with. Um, those are all, oftentimes much cheaper than audiobooks. So if you don't mind a semi-robotic uh, sounding voice, which Siri gets better every year, but if you don't mind Siri reading you books, you can do this thing. You have to enable this in settings, but it's a two-finger swipe down from the top and Siri will read you the contents on any page. So even with articles oh, wow. as well, I'll use this app called Pocket to save an article to to the app. And what what Pocket does is it gets rid of all of the ads, all of the unnecessary text other than the article. And then I have Siri. I do the two-finger swipe down. Siri starts reading all the text on the page. If you don't use Pocket to do that, it'll literally read you out like www. blah, blah, blah. Like today's day, all the stuff you don't, you don't want Siri to read you. Pocket eliminates that. And then it just turns any article into an audiobook that you can listen to on one time speed on 10 times speed. I usually do like 1.75 or two. And um, pretty much allows me to turn any written content on my phone into audio, even email. Uh, when if I get a long email from someone, I'll have Siri read it to me instead of um, just sitting there. reading. What a cool idea. Way to, what a cool way to like adapt adapt the tools to your to yourself, right? To like what you know works best for you. I love yeah, that. Yeah, thanks. It's it's technically like an accessibility setting. It's literally in the accessibility um, settings on the iPhone. So it's for people who can't see the screen well, or if you're blind and you can't see it at all, um, to sure. be able to read the contents on your phone. So um, there's some amazing accessibility updates in iOS 13 that would blow people's mind that are technically. Uh, meant for someone with some type of physical disability. But from a productivity standpoint, it can really be a game changer. So you can actually, you can talk to your computer and do anything on your computer just by talking to it now. Same with your phone. Uh, not just dictating yeah. text. You could, you could open apps, uh, you know, move your mouse around um, purely from voice interaction with your computer and your phone. So I, I dictate almost everything. I dictate my emails now because I'm faster at at talking than just writing. Uh, and it takes some practice, but um, there are some amazing productivity hacks built into the accessibility settings that uh, Mac users should definitely check out. I love that. What a, what a cool, you know, it, who, like seems like a, a little bit of a missed opportunity from the, from a marketing angle. So all, all the you know product people take notes. Sometimes your accessibility stuff has completely different utility to a different group. Exactly. Of people. That's very true. I love that. I love that. 
Well, very cool. So, um, just kind of in, in closing, I wanted to ask, um, first of all, you know, where can people connect with you online? And, and also, is there any, um, anything you want to leave the audience with or, um, any requests you have for someone listening to this? Yeah. Well, definitely connect with me if there's anything I can do to help, even if it's just through advice. Um, there have been a lot of people in my life that have gone way out of their way to give me advice that really, tr- you know, changed the trajectory of, um, what we ended up doing and, and, uh, the things that I'm passionate about. So I, um, I'm definitely very bought into the, the kind of the pay it forward mindset and would love to help uh, however I can with anyone listening. Um, connecting is usually best via um, LinkedIn or Instagram. Um, LinkedIn for the boring stuff, Instagram for the fun stuff. Uh, so if you want to watch all those uh, fun adventure stuff, you can follow me on at Marshall Mosher. Uh, if you type in Marshall and then just M, it should come up. I'm actually right above Eminem, which uh, that was like, one of my, um, like, wow, I can't believe that. Uh, I was pretty like, honored. Like, look, it's like, wow. Oh, yeah. uh, I made it. I made it. <laughs> I made it in life. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then LinkedIn, Victory. you just do search uh, Marshall Mosier and uh, hopefully it'll pop up somewhere up in the top several. But um, yeah, shoot me a message on either one of those. Happy to help however I can. And um, yeah, if there's one takeaway I could say from sort of the message today, the theme is you know, don't be afraid to get outside your comfort zone. Use that in a vulnerable way to encourage and engage your team to push past their own perceived limits in a way that can connect you and the rest of your team on a deeper and more meaningful level. I love it. Well, with that, thank you so much, brother. It's been a really fun conversation and I can't wait for people to uh, get a chance to tap into the wisdom you just dropped all over us. Same. We'll have to have uh, round two uh, for the next podcast at Burning Man next year. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.